Thank you for tuning in to Movie Geeks United. Fans of 70s cinema are in for a treat. In this episode, we speak with Jonathan Kirshner. He's the author of Hollywood's Last Golden Age, Politics, Society, and the 70s Film in America. And he's the editor of When Movies Mattered, The New Hollywood Revisited. Both of these volumes are highly recommended. He has tremendous insights into the qualities that made the cinema of this decade so uniquely satisfying. In this conversation, we discuss Bob Rafelson's Five Easy Pieces and The King of Marvin Gardens, as well as Roman Polanski's Chinatown and Robert Altman's The Long Goodbye. Enjoy. You still have the Vietnam War. Um, you're at the tail end of the most uh, effervescent moments of the civil rights movement. You're in the middle uh, of the women's rights movement. And then you have uh, the kind of Shakespearean saga of the Nixon presidency. And people can't help but kind of look around and be influenced by that. There's also the feeling of an embrace of ambiguity. Was that, yes. was that reflective well, of our, you know, what, what's, what's real, what's true, what's at, the, uh, at that time? I think ambiguity is a key phrase, and I think that this gets back to the transformation of the American censorship, movie censorship system, which was an in-house censorship system. Hollywood censored itself, and the Production Code Authority kind of unravels uh, from 1966 to 1968 for a number of reasons that we don't have to talk about at the moment, but what I want to put my finger on is that when people think about the end of censorship, they often think about sex and violence um, and uh, you know drugs and things like that, things that were forbidden from the screen. But the censorship code that Hollywood was under from 1934 to the mid-1960s also forbade uh, moral ambiguity, that movies had to end with a resolution of the moral structure as properly received by society. And so filmmakers working after that period, a lot of them really reveled in pushing back against that notion. The time seemed morally ambiguous, and they wanted, they wanted to explore that. They didn't want to tell stories with good guys and bad guys, and then the good guys won, and then we leave the theater. Um, they wanted to explore flawed characters wrestling with complex situations that didn't have obvious solutions and that always didn't or, or rarely ended uh, well, you know, happily. Yeah. And out of this came a series of talents that uh, it was just the right moment for them to emerge. People like Robert Altman. Uh, I mean, they're on and on and on. But uh, I, I want to talk to you a little bit about BBS, uh, Rafelson and Schneider and Nicholson, uh, those collaborations, um, their work was especially um, uh, spoke to the, the times in which those films were made, didn't they? Yes, and if, if I may engage in this shameless self-plug, you know, I have just written this chapter, BBS and the New Hollywood uh, Dream, in, in this book on the New Hollywood Revisited that I co-edited with John Lewis, and it was a chapter I really wanted to write for reasons that are apparent in the title, uh, The New Hollywood Dream. One of the things the studios were increasingly willing to do was to take a chance on unproven talent, uh, and, the, and the basic trade was low budget in exchange for no studio interference. And so the BBS deal was six films, a uh, million dollars budget each, and if they came in under budget, 
the studios had no say whatsoever as to content. I mean, that's why, for example, Peter Bogdanovich's BBS film, The Last Picture Show, uh, was shot in black and white. A studio probably would not have greenlit that, um, but they were the studio balked at it, but Bogdanovich was backed by the producers, and it was made in black and white. And so as long as they kept within these, these relatively, by those day standards, means, they could do whatever they want. Similarly, a movie like The King of Marvin Gardens, impossible to imagine that kind of movie being made under the auspices of a major studio today. And so that's what's, so all of these, uh, these pictures, uh, you know, and the, the BBS of the uh, Bert Schneider, Bob Rapelson, and Steve Blounder were the, were the production team, but Jack Nicholson is kind of a jack of all trades, very much involved in the partnership, uh, oversaw this little this little cottage that made these films. Other studios tried to copy the model, but not with as much success, although there were these other mini units out there that tried to do that as well. And that was the heart of it. And again, they were still, they, they hoped to make money, right? They weren't, they weren't afraid of dirtying their hands with money, but they wanted to make intensely personal films that they cared about in the way they wanted to make them and not compromise over content or more especially over ending or casting or any of those things in the name of money. They wanted to make their pictures. Ideally, they turn a profit. Why? Well, because it's nice to make money, but also because if your movies make money, they let you make more movies. So it wasn't obscure art films they were making, but rather it was kind of challenging films along the lines that we've discussed, inspired by some of these other European film movements. Yeah, and tell me a little bit about, share with me some of your insights about Five Easy Pieces, and specifically how it reflected the American male at that time. There seemed to be a sense of alienation in a lot of these films at that time. Yes. I think alienation is the exact word to use because the Nicholson character, Bobby Toupee, is deeply alienated. But what's really interesting about this is that he's alienated from himself. Right? It's that, that's that line from that Jackson Brown song, uh, no matter how far I run, I can never seem to get away from me. I mean, Nicholson's character is constantly in flight but he's you know, running away from lives that he has created and just finds unacceptable. And he, he alienates uh, most of the people that he encounters. It's a fascinating story. One critic, I think it was Stephen Farber, said it was an even more mature film than Easy Rider because Easy Rider is pretty straightforward, right? The problem is the straight America and bad rednecks kill hippies, right? So the problem is external. In Five Easy Pieces, right, the problem is internal. It's Bobby, Jack Nicholson's character, being uncomfortable in his own skin. And I think what also makes it a real new Hollywood film, a real BBS film, is that he's not a nice guy. <laughs> uh, you know, he treats uh, most of the people he meets, and especially uh, Karen Black's character, uh, terribly. And if it wasn't for Jack Nicholson's just, you know, irresistible charisma, just what an unpleasant fellow Bobby was would be even more apparent. But because he carries the role so well, what we have is this kind of fascinating character study of someone who finds himself unable to fit into so many different versions of American life. Mm. And it's someone who undercuts his own potential. Well, I think that's right, though. I think that there's an element of self-destruction uh, mm. there as well. In several scenes, you can see 
him almost undercutting what would be his best interests. Yeah, and what what I also love about films from this period, I, I, I think of the great character studies, whether it's Bobby Dupuis in Five Easy Pieces or even something like uh, much later, the, the Travis Bickle or, you know, Dog Day Afternoon, even though that's based on a real person. They... You can you can imagine that they have a life that extends beyond the running time of the movie. Uh, it yes. doesn't it doesn't feel fully packaged, a beginning to end thing. And I'm wondering if if you think about it, uh, what do you think became of Bobby Dupree? Well, that's a great question because you know I teach this movie and you know, I always ask the students about that and a lot of people think he's going to die. <laughs> Um, he's getting on that truck, you know, he's, he's shed his skin once again. We've seen this two or three times in the movie, and this time it's his jacket, it's his wallet, it's the look in the mirror, it's very ritualistic, and then he says, you know, we're going to Alaska where it's colder than hell. Um, and it's, uh, it's, it's, it feels as if he's run out of lies. Now, maybe he does, maybe he doesn't. You know, the glorious thing about a movie like Five Easy Pieces is it has this astonishing uh, open ending. In Roger Ebert's review at the time, he saw it at the New York Film Festival, he talks about the stunned silence at the end of the movie as the audience is kind of processing how it's ended, right? But ended with this, this unexpected separation and failed resolution of any kind of normal movie talk. But the hint of death, I mean, Alaska had been invoked earlier in the movie, but if we want to cheat a little, and my own view is that this is cheating because you're only allowed what's on the screen. But we do know in earlier screenplays, Carol Eastman wrote this under the pseudonym Adrian, Adrian Joyce in collaboration with the director, Rafelson. And in earlier screenplays, Eastman had Bobby die in a car crash. They leave um, the house the way they do in the movie, and they're driving along the road the way they do in the movie. And then they crash. It goes like into a ravine or something. And Karen Black's character, uh, Rayette, gets out and starts screaming at Bobby for a while until she realizes that he's died in the car crash. So we do know at least that some of the makers of the film wanted it to end in his death. But we also know they rejected that uh, as too melodramatic, too contrived. So they didn't want, they didn't want us to know he died. But, mm. but there is certainly that element that he's running out of time in some way, running out of skins to shed, I would put it. Do you feel at all that he reaches a point in the movie where he begins to assert himself in, in what he might ultimately want for himself? Well, it's tricky. I mean, he storms out of two rooms, right? He storms out of the room uh, or, or out of the confrontation with his friend Elton, uh, calling him a dumb cracker asshole or something like that. But then he storms out of the room in, uh, in the island uh, in the northwest where he you know, screams at the, uh, that intellectual who call, he calls her a dumb celibate or something like that, and that he's, he's totally alienated from, from both of these settings. You know, he was raised to be a concert pianist, and either he wasn't good enough, as he suggests to his father in his final monologue, or he didn't want to do it, which is another possibility. But was he grasping towards something, I think we would find that in his pursuit of the Susan Onslaught character, mm. um, that there might be a more mature relationship. She's presented as a rather formidable, 
a female character who's in charge of her own agency and her own destiny and what she wants. And I think it's a very strong character and a, and a very welcome character. And the scene, the, the, the two scenes at the end of the movie, for me, that really matter are he talks to her, um, Susan Onspach's character, and then he talks to his father and then he leaves. Her conversation with him is that is devastating. I mean, so to follow your suggestion that he's maybe finally emerging towards something that he might be, uh, the monologue that she lays on him at that juncture about uh, how a person like him could expect love in return, when, and then she kind of summarizes what his life has been and what type of person he's been to that moment, is kind of shattering, and I think that's where the movie really ends. She cuts him down. The person has no love for himself, no respect for himself, no love of his friends, family, work, something. How can he ask for love in return? He then goes and has the final confrontation with the mute father, the famous scene that you know apparently he improvised, um, uh, and then gets in the car and flees once again. My feeling is, I don't know, that uh, if you could talk, we wouldn't be talking. I do think we can see him seeing in Susan Osbach's character perhaps some sort of life that is acceptable to him but mm. she doesn't see it at least uh, I, I so even see I'm it low. I even see the the beginning rumblings of it in the in the most famous scene in the film which is that the diner scene yeah where he, he seems to be asserting himself and, and saying no uh, I'm not going to settle this is what I want <laughs> that's kind of what that scene needs to be number two chicken salad sand hold the butter the lettuce and the mayonnaise and a cup of coffee Anything else? Yeah, now all you have to do is hold the chicken, bring me the toast, give me a check for the chicken salad sandwich, and you haven't broken any rules. You want me to hold the chicken, huh? I want you to hold it between your knees. <laughs> you see that sign, sir? Yes, you all have to leave. I'm not taking any more of your smartness and sarcasm. You see this sign? <laughs> Yes, no, it's a, it's, a, it's a wonderful scene and appropriately iconic, and it really reflects that kind of countercultural moment uh, where, you know, he, want, he doesn't want to have to blindly follow the rules. Um, but, you know, cutting against that are, are two observations. One is that Bobby is definitely not of the counterculture, right? He's kind of a free agent. And the other is, as he says in the car, you know, the, the two women passengers that they had picked up on the road, they're praising him and patting on the back and saying, man, that was great the way you showed her. Fantastic that you could figure that all out and lie that down on her so you could come up with a way to get your toast. Fantastic. Yeah, well, I didn't get it, did I? No, but it was very clever. I would have just punched her out. So it's, it's, it's a very interesting take, at least from his character, on on what the meaning of that scene was. But I do think when you're sitting there in the audience, you're just, you're, you're with him, you're living with that, uh, that, that, you know, that basic protestation. Let's not just follow the rules blindly. Let's just try and, you know, be creative and do the right thing. And, uh, you know, that, there was a lot, you know, the, the idea, it's not that the 60s generation invented this. Most youthful generations like to think they're rebelling against the staid previous generation. But the idea that kind of the conformity toward rules for the sake of conforming to the rules, but certainly 
something that generation saw itself as pushing back against. Yeah. Gosh, what a beautiful movie that is. Um, yeah. The, the, the King of Marvin Gardens. Give a shout out to Laszlo Kovacs, the cinematographer, while we're oh, oh, yes. I mean, he was so essential in a lot. You know, but I find that even uh, a, a, a much lesser movie, there's a movie that came out that year called Adam at 6 a.m. It was yeah. uh, one of Michael Douglas's first features. And yes. obviously, it's not of the caliber of five easy pieces. But it's really dealing with a lot of the same uh, character issues, the kind of the listless, what's expected of me? What do I want to do with my life? I don't know. What's my place in this world? Uh, so it's what's in the air. There, there's some periods of film where there's something in the air, and a lot of filmmakers catch on to that. Definitely. And I also want to add another thing. What else was in the air was, was an audience. I mean, it was not just the films. It was a film culture. Um, so that there was what the film critic Stanley Kaufman in a, in a piece on the film generation called an avidity for a film. And it was people, you know, probably uh, educated type, urban types in their 20s and 30s, college age and beyond, who saw themselves as part of this kind of cinephilic culture. They would go to the movies, then they would fight about the movies, you know, and they would mm. talk about them, and that's what they did. And I, I'm, I'm not of that generation, but I'm, I'm old enough that that's what we did in college, too. We still went to the college movie house, and then we left the theater arguing about the, arguing about the movie later, kind of on into the night. I think that's a little less common uh, nowadays. I don't think college campuses are as centered on uh, movie culture as they used to be. And so one of the one of the things that made this era possible was it's not just the supply side, it's also the demand side, right? There's there was a large enough cohort that was eager to kind of get deeply engaged in in this content. You know, it was also an age in which there were a large number of really interesting film critics and film essayists writing all at the same time. And so there's this this ongoing conversation between all yes. of these parties. Outside of the BBS, I want to talk to you a little bit about something I mentioned earlier, which was the, the, the kind of playing around with uh, established tropes. And I find that that's especially relevant in the detective noir genre, as it was explored in Chinatown and The Long Goodbye, and the notion of, the notion of what is masculinity in, in those arenas. Um, I'm wondering, because Chinatown, your book, The Last Golden Age, uh, uh, Chinatown is the cover, um, yeah. and it's definitely well, an important, important film of that period. Tell, tell me your insights into, into that film and how that plays with established genre. Sure. Let me preface that by saying that I think it's the detective film and film noir, but also the, the revisionist Western. And I think that our filmmakers... Um, grew up on these films as, as moviegoers. Uh, and so the Western and the detective film were, in fact, ripe for revisitation, ripe for revisionism, because they, they were both inescapably full of questions of masculinity, of questions of honor, of questions of Americana, uh, especially, you know, and uh, I'm going to get to the detective film, but the Western film is kind of wrapped up in America's notions of itself and so a more skeptical revisionist genre, and, you know, Sam Peck and Paul would be the master of the revisionist Western, is kind of reimagining some of those Western tropes, both mm. about masculinity, but also about America, in, in a number of films that, that really are able to 
kind of turn these conventions on their head and re-examine them. But that's certainly there uh, in in the private detective film as well, and it's 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 a just a perfect uh, genre for uh, a revisionist. And you mentioned Altman earlier, and he is certainly the ultimate revisionist. And for me, the Mount Rushmore here is The Long Goodbye in Chinatown, which you both mentioned, but also Arthur Penn's uh, Night Moves. Uh, oh, yes. Yeah. Uh, and all three of these are really challenging uh, many of the conventions uh, of film noir and of the detective film, because the conceit of film noir, which was pretty tough, it was pretty daring for the classical studio period, is that maybe the world is a, is a dark and dangerous place and maybe good guys don't always win and maybe power is there and it's corrupting, but you can have these kind of white knights you know, who are tough on the outside but really care about things on the inside, who can make the world a little bit better for the few people who cross their paths. And the revisionist film noir says, no, they can't. <laughs> Even, and this is and that's the, one of the key messages of Chinatown is that the very act of the investigation actually makes things worse. Mm. It's a very nihilist movie. I mean, it's a brilliant movie. I mean, I, I have dubbed it the Citizen Kane of the 70s film because I think it is just so precisely brilliant. And all of the participants, you know, director, writer, Robert Town, obviously, Roman Polanski directed, but even the set design, the editors, the performers, uh, cinematographer, this, this is a profoundly, brilliantly crafted film. But the lesson is that the investigation itself cannot help. And in fact, is this, you know, she, Faye Dunaway's character dies, spoiler alert, at the end of this movie, solely because of Nicholson's interventions. If he had not gotten involved, uh, she probably would have escaped to Mexico. But at every turn, his mistakes, his well-intentioned mistakes, make things worse. He's constantly not two steps ahead of the game the way, say, Sam Spade would be. But he's not grasping the big picture until it's too late. And, and it's, there are little hints about this throughout the, the film. In the very beginning, when uh, the fake uh, Mrs. Mulray comes to hire him, he kind of tries to talk her out of, of even investigating the case, saying, you're better off not knowing, let sleeping dogs lie. And if he had only applied those uh, principles to his own behavior, everybody would have been better off. And this is, the, I think, one of the most brilliant things about Chinatown is that Jake thinks he's Sam Spade, but he's not. Mm. And there's a scene at the end of The Maltese Falcon in which Humphrey Bogart more or less slaps the truth out of Mary Astor, and yes, yes, she was a femme fatale, and yes, yes, she's guilty. Uh, and there's a similar scene at the very end of Chinatown where Jake more or less slaps the truth out of Faye Dunaway, and it turns out, wow, uh, he's got it all wrong, and he's put this innocent person in tremendous danger. And I think that parallel is what the movie, in its revisionism, is toying with. It's, it's denying the very possibility that these kind of white knights uh, could come in and save the day. But, you know, it was, it, it was very uh, mid-'70s out there. It was, it was more of a pessimistic time. Yeah, but how realistic was it? Because I, when, when I think of these themes that these films explore, I think about what that these films came out uh, in the aftermath of multiple political assassinations, uh, revelations that uh, were being lied to, 
uh, that that something with the with the war and and, and all the chaos all over what's going on? We don't recognize this anymore. Are we powerless to stop it? And then I think today, a lot of uh, apathy has set in. Uh, yeah, to, to those and, and acceptance. Well, that's just the way things are. So when you think about those things of Chinatown, is it is it essentially saying it's better to turn a blind eye and not get involved? Well, I don't. I mean, Chinatown's a pretty darn nihilist movie. Uh, so I think your general sense is right about the difference between then and now, because, you know, the so-called political science literature can tell us that because of the Vietnam War and because of the experiences of Watergate, there was a sea change in the public perception of trust of government and large institutions more generally. And so that was a traumatic experience for Americans in the late 60s into the early 70s. Now we're past that. I mean, young people today can't imagine a time in which you would kind of have basic faith in, say, government officials or in, in large institutions. There is it's a much more dyed-in-the-wool cynicism and expectation of the worst. But I do think that this, this transformational moment was brought with it its own trauma. I think one of my favorite little anecdotes from Watergate is how people were shocked uh, when they heard the Nixon tapes. And John Wayne's reaction to the Nixon tapes was, damn, he lied to me, <laughs> and he was upset about that. And, and, you know, today, people just assume that they're being lied to all the time, and so to have those lies revealed is a little less shocking to them. But I, I do think that it was a rather despairing time. I mean, there's, there's a lot going on. You also have the economy kind of uh, in its – you have this wonderful post-war boom from, say, 47 to 1970, and the economy starts to slow down in the early 70s. You know, as I mentioned, you have the trauma of the Vietnam War, you have the mind-boggling nature of the Nixon presidency. It's, it's too easy today, I think, for understandable reasons to forget just how transgressive the Nixon presidency seemed, simply because we've gone six orders of magnitude of transgression beyond that now. But at the mm. time, it was a mind-boggling transgression. And so people were, you know, you had this plethora of paranoid thrillers. You mentioned the detective movies, which I revere, but, you know, we also had, the, you know, the Parallax View, Three Days of the Condor, films like that, in which the idea that there were these kind of grand conspiracies going on. I think it was a very despairing time. And so I do, I do think Chinatown, I mean, I, again, I love uh, Chinatown, as you mentioned, I put it on the cover, uh, but I think it is nihilist all the way down. I think it... I think it. I think it denies the very possibility. I don't agree with this, but I think it denies the very possibility that that action can productively be taken. Yeah, and and that that course of that movie takes feels uh, completely true to to that film, uh, and yeah. and especially coming from the perspective of someone like Roman Polanski at that period of sure. time. Uh, that's why I feel so personal. I mean, sure, it's a it's a detective film in many ways. It, 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 in spite of the elements that it turns on its head, in many ways, you still feel that the movie has a great affection for that classic structure. Oh, uh, certainly. Yeah, and that's, I would say the same for The Long Goodbye. 
which I think it takes it takes so many chances. I mean, just starting with the casting of Elliot Gould. <laughs> yeah, I mean that that's that's a signal right there. But the long goodbye is, I think, revisionist in, in, in another profoundly important way, which is the ending when uh, – uh, can I ruin the ending? Am I allowed to do that here? Go ahead. Go ahead. When, when uh, he shoots uh, his fr- – he kills his friend. That's what the, the revisionist aspect of the, of the film was about for him. And it wasn't that Philip Marlowe would kill his friend. Rather, it's, in, it's the betrayal. I mm. mean – Altman always said what Marlowe had going for him, and he's talking about the 40s Marlowe, was that a friend is a friend. And that's the code of ethics. We talk about masculinity. The code of ethics amongst men at that time. And so when um, the, his friend comes, now we're back into the long goodbye, to his home at 3 o'clock in the morning with bloody hands and says, drive me to Mexico, uh, you know, you do that because he's your friend and you trust him and you know he's okay and you don't ask questions and then the, you come back home and the police arrest you and throw you in prison and you don't talk and that's because of the, of the code amongst men. And so what Altman wanted to sh- take away from that, from the noir ethos, from the detective film ethos, was this code, because in fact his friend had betrayed him. And uh, Elliot Gould, Philip Marlowe, goes around the movie mumbling, it's okay with me, it's okay with me, you know, girls doing yoga naked across the way of his house, it's okay with me, you know, you get arrested for that, it's okay with me. But the one thing that is not okay with Philip Marlowe is that a friend would betray you. That's the ultimate crime. And so the the resolution of that crime must end the way it does. When, when Gould showed the film to Sutherland, uh, Donald Sutherland, his fellow actor and dear friend, Sutherland's response was, I see, it's a film about morality, right? And that's the moral closure of the film, right? Raymond Chandler f- fans freaked out because it's a, he just murders his friend in cold blood. But if you're not uh, you know, obsessed about the original book and, and you know, you're more obsessed about film noir in the 70s film, that is the only act of moral closure that takes place uh, in the film. And yet, when I, when I watch The Long Goodbye, uh, I, I, I appreciate and agree with everything you're saying about it. But I also see an element of the playful Altman, because he knows what you expect from a Hollywood movie in this genre. And so after that uh, killing, uh, at the conclusion, it shows Elliot Gould kind of walking off, and he does like this buoyant jump skip yeah. thing. And the movie yeah. opens, I think, on on like I think it opens on a Hollywood skyline or or something. Uh, yeah, and it ends with that hooray for Hollywood. Uh, yes, song. and it's 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 an ironic. Kind of yeah, you thought you were getting this kind of movie, but you didn't. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, and he's he's playing with Hollywood convention from start to finish in that movie, having a good time with it, and there's a lot of humor in it. So you know that's all there. It's a very much a a self-referential movie about the nature of the movie business, which a lot of Altman movies are, and there's nothing wrong with that. But certainly, it, it has those very uh, playful elements, um, and uh, as you mentioned. Is there a, a film from this period of time that you think is unfairly under the radar that you like to champion? Oh, wow. So there's like a hundred of them. But <laughs> I, do think, I do think that uh, that BBS film I mentioned earlier, The King of Marvin Gardens, uh, mm. is one of the 
the towering achievements of the new Hollywood. And it is, it's, it's the follow-up that Rafelson and Nicholson did to Five Easy Pieces, and it involves uh, two brothers. Uh, Nicholson uh, plays one brother, and Bruce Dern uh, plays the other brother. Ellen Burstyn has another role in that film, and she is absolutely outstanding in it. And uh, Rafelson got it in his head that he hadn't really uh, explored the relationship between the brothers in Five Easy Pieces, and they're very different characters, but he wanted to do a film that focused upon the relationship between brothers. And it is, I think, a less obviously entertaining film than Five Easy Pieces. But I think it is a much more kind of profound and rewarding, especially over time. This is a movie that has a lot to say. It's beautifully done, also shot uh, by Laszlo Kovacs. Its structure is extraordinary. The performances are fantastic. And the, the conceit of the film is that Nicholson chose to play the kind of uh, introverted character and Dern played the extroverted character, which is sort of against the way they mm -hmm. would usually play roles. They did a lot of uh, collaborations together. And so one of the many, many pleasures of this film is to see how extraordinarily good they can be playing against type like that. And Nicholson's, it's probably Nicholson's most subtle performance in a career in which he's often accused of chewing the scenery. Um, but it's also a brilliant performance. And Dern is also marvelous. And as I mentioned, Ellen Burstyn, just, uh, just extraordinary. There's a, a, a small but important role by Scatman Crothers. It's also an allegory for this period in American history, I think Rafelson said, you know, when I, when I wrote that, you know, I was thinking about the fact that everybody that I revered was getting shot. So it has that same sort of mournful element to it. And it's, uh, I, I, could, I cannot recommend it highly enough, both as a great film, but also as an exemplar of the type of movie the new Hollywood hoped to be making. No one reads anymore. I have been deprived my literary right, and I crave an audience. The form of the tragic autobiography is dead, or will be soon, along with most of its authors. Goodbye, written word. So I have chosen this form, radio, to author my life. Not because my life is particularly worthy, but because it is hopefully, comically unworthy. Besides, tragedy isn't top 40.